You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, we're going to move now to the preaching of God's Word. And if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. And uh, my wife, Kim, is going to read that for us. Matthew 12, 22 through 32. Join me in reading Matthew 12, 22 through 32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, And he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is God's word. Amen. All right, well, let's look at verse 22 here. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So right off the bat, we have a very amazing occurrence, right? And I want us to think about it like this. A person's actions tell us a lot about who that person is, right? Actions tell you about identity. Actions tell you about identity. So super simple. Uh, We could think of a thousand examples, but I'll give you the one that comes to mind for me. Uh, When you see LeBron James fly through the air and dunk a basketball, you connect his deeds with his identity, right? To be able to dunk a ball like that through a hoop 10 feet high, uh, that says something about who someone is. He performs this really athletic deed, and so, so then what do we say about his identity? Who is he? We say that he is athletic. His identity is someone who is very, very athletic. He's a superb, he is, identity statement, he is a superb athlete. 
So the same thing would apply here if you were watching this go down for the first time. If you were in that crowd of people that saw this. So try to imaginatively place yourself into the world of the text. If you see a deed like this and everything within you says, this is supernatural. It's not just athleticism. This is supernatural. What would you say about the person in terms of their identity that performs the supernatural deed? You would most likely say, right? Super logical. They are supernatural. He does supernatural things. Thus, he is supernatural. It's just part of his identity, right? Well, you would think that that would be just the black and white response of the people. And it's not quite either yet. Um, we're going to see two different responses. Let's look at the first response. Look at verse 23. And all the people were amazed when they saw this miracle. All the people were amazed and said, this is their response, can this be the son of David? Now this makes sense, right? If you were in the crowd, imagine yourself there. Guy's blind, he's mute, and he's demon-possessed. And in an instant, healed, restored, made new. Seeing, talking, in his right mind. Not living a destructive lifestyle. You would be amazed, right? So look at how they respond. Can this be David's son? Meaning, that's just Old Testament speak for, is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah, the promised savior of God's people? And they're not really sure. They're posing it as a question, but at least they're asking a good question. It's not necessarily opposition, but wonder and awe and probably a desire to know more. So that's the first recorded response, right? Now let's keep going. Let's look at the second response, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Interesting response, right? <clears throat> that might be an understatement. Uh, so you know how you, when maybe you've been debating somebody and you're bested by them, uh, especially someone who's really competitive and you know that you've lost the debate or you lost the competition. When you lose, it's black and white, right? You can't deny it. And for those of us that are really competitive, it's really painful to lose, right? So we see this all the time. It, this can lead people to do really, really silly things and say things that are really foolish, right? I used to see this all the time when I would play pickup basketball uh, in my teens and in my 20s, every now you would you would see a guy who goes up for a shot and after he misses it, he conveniently starts limping around as if that was the reason why he missed the shot. And, you know, everybody's seen it. If you've ever played pickup basketball in the gym, there's guys that do it all the time. It's like, oh, up goes the shot or the guy who just like gets fouled every single time. Um, you know, he can't deny that he missed the shot. So there has to be some explanation for the miss. It couldn't be that I just suck at basketball, right? Kids do this all the time when they argue. 
I, 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 I got to admit that I don't have much evidence for this, but um, like one kid will demonstrate to the other what they're saying might be dumb or silly or false. And the other kid will respond with, well, you're dumb, you know? Um, it's like, what does that have to do with anything? <clears throat> um, having some curious looks in the <laughs> audience right now. But the reality is when we're backed into a corner that you don't want to find yourself in, this is usually not the time when we're at our most logical, right? It becomes more emotive, more reactive. And that's what we see the Pharisees doing here in their response. They can't deny what just happened. It's as black and white as it gets. This guy was blind, he was mute, and he's demon-possessed, and now he's not. These are just the facts that could not be ignored. So they can't deny the power of the miracle, but they can attempt to discredit Jesus by saying the miracle comes from a satanic force and not God's power. That seems pretty desperate, right? And, and what we're going to see is Jesus just de deconstructs this very logically. So first he appeals to the mind, and then we're going to see him appeal to the heart, okay? Let's look at how Jesus deconstructs their claim that he's doing all this by the power of Satan. He just appeals to something that everybody understands, something we've been talking about a lot as a church right now. <laughs> it's this, that unity brings strength. Unity brings strength. If Satan wants, this is what Jesus says, basically, if Satan wants to win the spiritual war, it makes no sense that he would empower the removal of his helpers, right? Because unity brings strength. I think about uh, this, I'm looking right now at our at our house here, and there's this huge beam uh, if I could, I'd flip around the camera and show you. But we took out a wall and we installed a huge beam. It's probably 12 inches thick and three and a half inches uh, wide. And uh, it's really, really strong. It upholds over the span of about 16 feet the whole weight of the roof and the second story of our house. Thousands of pounds. But here's the deal. If that beam starts to get cracks in it, well, what is a crack in a beam? It's a place where the wood is, is starting to separate, right? It's a little piece of, if the wood used to be here and now it starts to be like here, there's distance, there's separation, right? And that little form of separation makes it weaker. And if that little form of separation becomes a bigger form of separation, where what used to be one piece of wood now becomes two pieces of wood, what's going to happen? The whole roof's going to cave in, right? So separation brings weakness when it comes to a beam in our house. But if the beam is one united, strong, thick piece of wood that doesn't come apart, you can stack thousands and thousands of pounds on it and it won't break. Unity brings strength. One piece of one, one, one and not two means strength. And so Jesus just reminds them how silly their accusation is. Satan doesn't drive out Satan. Satan doesn't drive a wedge between his, his forces. 
Satan doesn't empower miracles of restoration. Satan doesn't restore, he destroys. Look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Point is clear, right? Well, he continues. Now he's going to just take a different angle on on their silly accusation. Verse 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. He's just saying that the Pharisees knew that in the Old Testament, exorcisms were still possible. Jewish leaders did exorcisms. He just says that right here. And he's just saying, where does their power come from? Was their power to do exorcisms from Satan too? He's just saying, if you claim that I'm using the devil's power, does that mean that your Jewish brothers, when they do exorcisms, they're accessing that power too? He's just, he's just pointing out their foolishness here. Let's look at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let's read that again. But if, but if it is by the Spirit of God, implication, he's saying it is the Spirit of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he's going to continue here. And he says, while we're on the topic of power, let me tell you about power. Since you see that I cast out demons, what he wants them to hear is know that the power of the kingdom of God is in your midst right now. The the word here could be translated, the kingdom of God has arrived. Like when you're waiting for a train at the train station and the train arrives and stops right in front of where you are. That's kind of the thought here. You've been waiting for this thing and now it's here and it's right in front of you. And you can get on the train and take you and it will take you where it promises to take you. It's powerful and it's here right now. And then he just keeps talking about power. Look at verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So he's, he's talking about someone who's really strong and they live in the house and you want to take what they have. So I, the first thought I had is kind of silly, but I think this is a, a great way to like expand on the illustration Think about getting into the gorilla cage at the zoo. You ever seen those huge gorillas, like the the male silverbacks? And at some zoos, you know, you can like, there's the thick glass and you can get right up next to them and really see, I mean, you're separated by two inches of glass and you can see how huge and powerful these male silverback gorillas are. Their hands are like bigger than my head and they're just these hulking creatures, right? Enormous frightening. And if you were crazy enough to climb into their their cage, their pen, you better have something else with you that's going to equip you. Something 
twice as strong, something much more powerful than they are. Like, so you, you would never, ever do that unless you had someone or something with you that you knew was more, more powerful than that gorilla. And Jesus is just saying, I'm that powerful. I'm the guy who is more powerful than the strong man. He's just saying, look at the evidence. Satan is strong, sure, but he's no match for me. I have the strength and the power to bind the strong man. I am plundering his house right now. Look at the evidence in verse 22. Blind, mute, demon-possessed. Like there was a power, a power of Satan, and it is strong, that was cap- that has captured that guy. And I've walked into that strong man's house and I've disarmed him, I've neutralized him, and I've set this poor man free from the power of the strong man. Why? Because I'm stronger. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the one who can bind the strong man. I'm the one who can get in the gorilla cage and tame the gorilla. This is a claim that you can't have any doubt about. All right, so let's summarize. What have we so far? Number one, we've got people amazed and wondering who Jesus is based on this miracle. Number two, we've got Pharisees with very, very hard hearts who are being very foolish in light of the evidence. And so what do they do? They bring very foolish accusations. And then number three, what we've seen is Jesus logically deconstructs these claims. So what does that all add up to? What does all this add up to? That's a great question. What it does is it produces a dividing line with extreme clarity. Look at what he says in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So you're either for me or you're against me. See, if you've really seen what I've done, you have to be either for me or against me. It's clear. You don't need to waffle. You just need to decide. Now, this doesn't mean that some of us in our process of becoming Christians, you know, we took our time. We had to think through some things. We had to work through through some things. We had to ask some questions. We wanted to investigate the claims of Christ. Jesus says himself, before following me, you should count the cost. Counting the cost might take a little time, right? This doesn't mean we have to rush people to hurry up and follow Jesus if they haven't made up their mind about Jesus. Some people in this world have never even heard the name of Jesus. That's why we engage with church planting among the nations. But that's not the context of these verses. See, Jesus had been in this area for a good amount of time. And he's just done a miracle that no one could deny right in their presence. In this context of this verse, it's good for Jesus to say, you need to decide. You need to decide. The evidence doesn't get any more clear than this. But then he closes with a word of grace and a word of decision. A word of grace and a word of warning. Let's take a look. Verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. 
So in the sermon discussion channel on Slack, I posted a really good article that deals with this verse because this verse can seem very, very challenging. And so that article, um, if this verse has tripped you up in the past or is tripping you up right now, I'm going to talk about it. But that article will provide more of an explanation that I really appreciate. So I'd encourage you to check that out on the sermon discussion uh, channel on Slack. But let's look at this just real briefly here. So first we have a word of grace, right? Jesus says, forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is possible for anyone. Every Look at what he says, verse 31. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven if there's repentance and faith. Like the heavy weight of condemnation can be lifted off your shoulders no matter what it is. Man, that's an amazing, amazing statement from Jesus. Is it not? Verse 32. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. See, what I always did when I read this verse was I thought there was maybe like some mysterious sin line that you would cross. And if you crossed it, maybe you didn't even know that you crossed it. There was just no going back. And even if you wanted to be forgiven, God wouldn't. And so it's like the unforgivable sin is like this mysterious thing that could haunt you and paralyze you and just be this torturous thought in your mind that you couldn't get past. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's already said in verse 31 that all sins will be forgiven if you repent and turn to Jesus. Think about Peter. Followed Jesus for three years, saw all of this stuff go down, and he still denied Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus restored him. Jesus forgave him in light of Peter's repentance. So then what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Again, the context is so important when we read our Bibles. The context here is that God himself is in their midst in flesh and blood and doing a miracle that's undeniable. And the Pharisees here, their hearts are so hard that they turn around and credit this miracle of God himself to the work of Satan. That demonstrates a really, really hard heart. It's like if you, if like saying two plus two equals four, everybody knows that, but you just insist that it equals five. Like what is going on here? Like that's what the Pharisees are like. Their heart posture is so hard. And that is very unique. This demonstrates a heart posture that's very unique. It's knowing the truth with this much clarity, as much clarity as there could ever be and saying that it's the work of Satan. It's not that someone can't ever be forgiven if they for that if if they were to repent in the future. Jesus already said, if you blaspheme, you could be forgiven if you repent. But rather what Jesus is saying here is you need to recognize what this says about your heart. What this says about your heart is it shows that it's so hard that it will never want to be forgiven. It'll never repent and turn toward Jesus. So in the sense, the unforgivable sin is just a, a reflection of what your heart is. You're never even going to want to be forgiven. It's that hard. So Jesus in, in, intends this as a warning to them, saying, if you keep this up, you are condemned for sure. You'll never be forgiven because you won't give a rip about God. You won't care about his miracles. It just shows 
that you have a heart that will never turn towards, towards him in repentance, and thus you'll never be forgiven. So this text isn't meant to be a threat to you. It, see, it, I, re- I read this all the time in studying this verse. Everybody says, if you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, it certainly means that this text is not about you. Those who are in this category don't care about Jesus, don't care about this text, don't care about this warning. So if you're worried about this in the least, it means that the Spirit's probably alive in your heart. So don't feel a threat from this text. Don't feel fear from this text. But it should call us to be aware of the perspective of the Pharisees here and want to run the other way. This type of resistance to Jesus is dangerous. But what we should do is this. Let me just close with this. We should see the work of God and what? Like like verse 23, like the people, stand amazed. Jesus said that the Spirit of God is among them right then and there. And here's the deal for us, fine family. The same is true for us. Stand in awe this morning. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now lives in all those who look in trusting and treasuring Jesus. All those who come to him in repentance and faith. The same Spirit that that took this guy from blind, mute, and demon-possessed and restored him is restoring us. Like, that's amazing. There's evidence of that in your life. You're not what you once were, right? That's evidence that you're, in, metaphorically speaking, no longer blind, mute, and possessed. You're possessed by a different spirit, the spirit of God, right? So if there's any shred of evidence in your life that you're not what you once were, be humbled, And express thanks to God because the evidence of his spirit being alive is in you. The same work that that Jesus did to this poor guy is alive in us. So may there never be hard hearts. May there be amazement like the crowds that said, is this the son of David, the Messiah? And we look back over 20 centuries and say to them, yes, yes, it is. Jesus is the Messiah And his spirit is fully alive in us because he died and rose again and sent his spirit to live in us and empower us for for radical deeds of love and sacrifice and for words that give him glory and spread joy to the whole world, neighbors and nations. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be humble before your word and that you teach us through it. Thank you for this testimony that Matthew wrote down that gives us deep encouragement this morning. Lord, if there's any here that are struggling, um, Lord, I pray that they would make that known and that your people would come alongside them with your word and in prayer and with with words of love to affirm and to help. God, we, we praise you that you rose from the dead and sent your spirit to live in us. And we ask, Lord, that we would keep in step with your spirit and that we would respond um, to your word of truth this morning with rejoicing, knowing that you were sent for us to save us, to call us your sons and daughters, and so that we could have hope. Would you pour that love of your Holy Spirit into our hearts right now, more and more in greater and greater measure. Lord, we ask for more of your Holy Spirit. 
In Jesus' name, amen.